If you will, turn with me to Exodus 19. Exodus chapter 19, and as you're turning there, some of you may be thinking, now hang on, this is a seven-week sermon, or eight-week sermon series. We're in week seven, and we're only at Exodus 19. I'm pretty sure there's 40 chapters in Exodus. <laughs> Either today's going to be a long sermon, or I'm not coming next week, you know what I mean? Um, but just hold your seat. Uh, it's not going to be like that. Things pick up a little bit here. As you know, when we start getting into some of the law code, uh, there's the storytelling comes to a halt, right? So it's the storytelling that's the difficult part in a sermon, right? Because I can't just jump in and give you the principles without giving you the story. Because, quite frankly, God chose to take his principles that he wanted to teach us and ingrain them in a people, in a story. This was his way of doing it. It's revelation, and and nobody had ever done this, by the way. Myth doesn't do that. You don't learn uh, what the gods are are wanting from you. That's not how you do it. You learn that from nature. It's nature worship. Here, God chooses to reveal himself through people. A particular group of people. How odd of God to choose the Jews, right? And this is what they say of themselves. And this is what the scripture says. And what we're finding here in Exodus is that we've been on a journey. And we've been delivered from Egypt now. Passed through the Red Sea. Been provided for in the wilderness. And now they've been in the wilderness for three months. And in particular, when the Ten Commandments are given, three months and three days. And what we are seeing is is what Exodus is all about. Redemption, redeeming his people out of bondage, and then revealing himself to his free people. He frees them to bring them home. He doesn't just free him and say, all right, see you later. Thanks for doing business with you. No. No, no, no. I want you to be my people. I want to be your God. Two big movements. Redemption from Egypt and revelation at Sinai. And so we've completed the redemption part. That took us a while to get out of Egypt, didn't it? And then the Red Sea... And then the wilderness. And now, way down in the south of the peninsula, Mount Sinai. Now, you'll remember, we don't exactly know where Sinai is, but it's somewhere there in the peninsula. And God uses this mountain as a holy place, doesn't he? You remember, this is where he reveals his divine name to them. Through Moses. So here's Moses on Sinai by himself, and he sees and encounters this burning bush. But now he's back, and you'll remember God even said to him at that point, He said, This will be a sign when you come back to worship me free on this mountain. 
And now he's with 600,000 fighting men, which probably translates to somewhere around 2.5 million people at this mountain. And God is going to reveal the law to them. He's going to go into covenant with them. But you also remember that Elijah, when Jezebel puts a bounty on his head for him to die, goes to Sinai and hears God in a still, small voice. Isn't it interesting? Same God, three different times, one location, and yet reveals himself in three different ways. You know what this tells me? And it lines up with the rest of Scripture. God is the same God. And yet, he's not going to do the same thing twice. There's not going to be another exodus from Egypt. There's not going to be another Moses. There's not going to be another parting of the Red Sea. He does these acts. That's why it's so important for them to write it down. So, let us look here in Exodus 19 at what has been written down for us. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians (laughs) and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Don't you get a picture there of Lord of the Rings? No? Just me? Hmm. Interesting. You don't remember? The eagles are coming. The eagles are coming. You know. Anyway. And how I bore you. You'd think Tolkien was reading the Bible, right? Which he was. He was a Christian. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you, notice, to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. As these children out of the mouth of a child has thanked you for your word. We too thank you for your word today. But may we not just hear it, but do it. We pray in your name. Amen. Israel's story is our story. This is what Jesus teaches us. This is what the New Testament teaches us. In our reading today from Hebrews... Hebrews is interlocked with the New Testament, uh, with the Old Testament. One cannot read Hebrews without bumping into the Old Testament, fundamentally speaking. In other words, if you say, we don't need the Old Testament as Christians, 
then you are now outside of Orthodox Christianity. No, they are tied inextricably together. Their story, our story. There's only one people of God. And he draws them out, he says, to himself. And so we can say he draws us out of sin, out of darkness, into his marvelous light, into his home. He has delivered them. He has provided for them, and now he is ready to formalize their relationship. Now, that may sound boring. You know what I mean? Contract, treaty, covenant. Covenant is the term that we even use when we say Old Testament and New Testament. Testament, it's covenant. You're really just saying simply Old Covenant and New Covenant. This is what we hold when we hold the Bible are both covenants, both of ours together. They are for Christians. This is why we would spend time in an Old Testament book like Exodus is because it is for us, not just for them, not just culturally theirs, but fundamentally ours. And so as we've seen, God had much more in mind than simply delivering them out of Egyptian bondage. That was the beginning, but it certainly was not the end. I mean, look at the rest of Exodus and you'll see that it's not the end. Look at the rest of the Bible and what he does with them. And one will know it was not the end. It was just the beginning of what he was going to do. But so often... We, like them, fall so short of what God wants to do. Don't we? He, we think, just wants to forgive us of our sin. It's just every week, Lord, forgive me again of my sin. Okay, now I'm back to normal life. And he's saying, child, don't you get it? Redemption in this way of forgiveness of sins is just the beginning. Forgiveness is for the purpose of relationship. You don't forgive someone that you're not going to be in relationship with. This is why we... And by the way, man, relationships cannot function, can they? Without forgiveness. It doesn't matter how good of friends you are with someone, how close you are as a family. There's going to be circumstances where you're going to have to forgive. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, we're about to head into family time, guys. Let's just be honest, okay? There's going to be some people coming to the house. We're going to be going to their house. And you know what? There's going to need to be a lot of forgiveness smeared everywhere along with the cranberry sauce. We need to understand, though, that forgiveness is meant to restore a relationship. There's something broken here, right? They were alienated from God. So he restores them to himself. But that doesn't mean they go right back into darkness. They don't go right back to Egypt. And you remember, 
It makes you angry when you're reading the text. You're like, why would you want to go back to Egypt? They're talking about, we miss those onions and we miss those boiled this and that. You're like, yeah, but did you miss the slavery? The forced labor? I'm sure the onions were great. But what about the smell of freedom? What about the invitation of God? You see, we like them fall so short when we think that our relationship with God is just this thing where we're supposed to do some stuff and then ask His forgiveness all the time. No. No. There's so much more. Forgiveness is for the purpose of unity. Love. And so one would think as you kind of edge into this covenantal language, which has to be the code of law. Covenants mean nothing unless they are of law. Some of us have learned that the, the hard way. We've shaken hands with someone and they didn't come through and there was nothing we could do about it. But the law, the law is binding. The law puts us in a place of responsibility and the other person in a place of responsibility. And you know, it's fascinating when you think about love, one of the last things you you really think about is kind of this legal, contractual language. And yet, this is what we're called to do in Christian marriage. Bind ourselves legally to one another. Make it difficult, very difficult, even legally to get out of this binding relationship. You may say, yeah, but that's why I just believe in this free love where there are no contracts. But you know what? That never is real love. Real love will always, always want to bind itself to the thing it loves. To make it its sole aim. Can you imagine Shakespearean poetry any other way than this obsession with the one? These, can you imagine love songs, love movies, where they hop from person to person? No. That's easy. That's not love. We know that's not love. C.S. Lewis, I love... <laughs> I read it again, I just, uh, always amazed, unbelievable, mere Christianity. In the chapter, Christian marriage, he says, the idea that being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or promise at all. If love is the whole thing, then the promise can add nothing. And if it adds nothing, then it should not be made. The curious thing is that lovers themselves, while they remain really in love, know this better than those who talk about love. As Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, pointed out, those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises. Love songs all over the world are full of vows of eternal constancy. Isn't the Song of Solomon too? 
the Christian law is not forcing upon the passion of love something which is foreign to that passion's own nature. It is demanding that lovers should take seriously something which their passion of itself impels them to do. This deep unity, covenantal love, must be maintained by the will, he says, and strengthened by habit. Reinforced always by the grace of God. Being in love was the explosion, he says, that started it. But this deeper, quieter love is the engine by which Christian marriage runs upon. Oh, how we need that engine to run in these days. (laughs) He follows it up as the last I'll read. It is because so few people understand this that you find many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth. At the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening round them. Man, we've seen that, and it's always sad. No, God, the scripture says, is love, and that's why he uses the container of covenant. To show us what love is all about. So he pours his grace into this human thing called covenant. Which was made in Moses' day. Normally known as a suzerainty covenant. Which is a, which is a king who conquers a people. And this subject people, they go into relationship with this king. It's interesting that God is not the conquering King, but rather the delivering king in our instance, in this covenant, and invites us to bind ourselves to him and he to us. What kind of God would do that? Binding himself to humanity in covenantal love. And then in Jesus Christ, story of stories, he ends up becoming a human to show how bound he is to humanity. I'm telling you, and it wasn't just for a season. It wasn't just for 33 years. Even to this day, we just sung about it. See my hands and feet, my side. He still has a human body. God has a human body. God is human. That's almost blasphemous to most. To Islam, unthinkable. To Jews, blasphemous. But to Christians, proves his great love for us. He became one of us so that we could become like him. Oh, man. I don't know if that blows your socks off or not, but maybe you're not, uh, maybe it's too early in the morning. You know, this is why it's never enough just to believe in these great promises. We must do them. 
One could say, yes, I'm in love with Jessica. I love her so much. But if my actions do not prove that love, that's just wishful thinking. What do our actions say about what we say about God? Our beliefs in Him. (laughs) There's several aspects here of the covenant that are great for teaching purposes. One is our res- that the respect for the importance of history. This particular time, this particular space. These become symbols of our faith that even to this day, we remember with the various signs. The fish, the loaves, the cross, the water, light. <laughs> New life, green. I mean, you just look around this room, these symbols are attached to real events that we remember. This is why it's important. <laughs> and, and, and every time we go to a wedding, what did Jessica and I do? We think about our wedding. Why? Because that's what you do. And when we come to church, what do we do? When we recount the salvation history of God, we remember our own salvation. We renew our own covenant with God. You see, this is a love relationship. Also, absolute loyalty to a single king. That's what was required of an ancient covenant. And so God uses this ancient covenant and fills it with his meaning. What does this mean for us? It means we should only have one true love. It doesn't mean we can't love others. But there's one true love that supersedes without rival all other, lo- all other loves. You know, we teach our kids this. We say, this is mommy and daddy's time, not yours. We're going to go out on a date without you. Now, <laughs> here, here's the thing. When you have two and below... The child circulates around, rotates around the mother, you know. But when you can, trust me, it is very freeing to be able to say, no, you're going to stay here and we're going to go do our thing because this relationship created you. You don't own it. This is different than the way I love you. Now, I love you with all my heart, but I love her with all my heart too and it's more fundamental It's crazy how love grows, you know? It really is, isn't it? Every child we had, we thought, I don't know how we're going to love this new child, Baylor, better than Jackson. I mean, we're just obsessed with the guy. And then here comes Frank along, you know, Baylor, and we're obsessed with the guy. Then the third one comes along, we say, man, I don't think we have any love left for Bo. And then we become obsessed with the guy. And then the next one comes along, and then the next, and then we stop finally, you know, (laughs) We ran out of love, you know. (laughs) But you get the point how love works, doesn't it? And, And you know what? I'm telling you, God has been doing something in my own heart for years now, but has like really cranked up the heat here recently. And it has to do with love. And, and, 
there wasn't a shining moment. It was through habitual practice that all of a sudden I woke up one day. Thomas Merton has a great quote about this, about being in Louisville. I wish I would have brought it, but I didn't. And one day I woke up and I realized I really do love people. A lot of the time I have to pretend, you know. I'm thinking, why are they talking to me? Why are they wasting my time? What are we doing even here? I have trouble with that, just being honest. And I woke up and I looked at them and thought, wow. Wasn't it like I didn't conjure it up? It happened through practice. That's how we learn to love. Don't you think God is the greatest teacher? How did he teach them? Through practice. Do this. Believe that. Even when you don't feel like it, do it. And then one day you'll wake up and realize you've got, if you're following the Spirit, that you've got love that you can't explain for people. Man, and that is a day where there's a lot of freedom there. There's a lot of freedom there. But you will never get there without practice. Without everyday habits. That's what the covenant does for us, is it binds us to a way of life. You see, there's these ethical stipulations. If you will, did you notice that? If you will follow me. (laughs) He says in 5, now therefore... By the way, when you see it in Bible study, when you see a therefore, look what it's there for. Just always remember that, okay? If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice he wants us to join him. In his salvation of the world. That's what the whole holy priest thing is about. Now sure, he's going to institute a priesthood. But he wants the whole nation to be that. And then you fast forward to Peter. And Peter's going to write his epistle and say, Look, we're called to be holy. Why? Not to just be statues of, Look how much good stuff I did. But instead, so that we can pour out God's love. Mediate God's love. Not some kind of spiritual energy or nature. The world's got enough of that. No, we are called to mediate love in action, not just in our head. That's why I love the opportunity this week to go to a shut-in who can't get out. You know, we don't know all the situations, but in some circumstances, whose family has even given up on them. And go and say, hey, receive this meal in Jesus' name. Let me pray for you to show you God's love. It's simple stuff. And yet, so many people are unwilling to do just even the little things. It doesn't start with the big things. All things in God's world start at the seed level. It's the little things we do. If you can't do the little things, you'll never get to the big stuff. Never. You say, well, I don't know that I can love the whole world. Don't worry about that. Love the people in your house. Start there. You must start there. Then you can move on to the people at work. 
and to the rest of the world. God's made it possible. He calls us to be faithful and live one way. And you know, the Ten Commandments, I'm not even going to get... They're in this section, right? So, if you actually... If you actually lay out this section of Scripture from 19 to 24, you've got preparation for the covenant. God prepares them. He says, look, wash your clothes. Don't touch the mountain. Don't have sexual intercourse. In other words, when you come into God's presence, there's always something to do worship-wise. It's important because when we come to church, what are we doing? Coming into God's presence. That's why there's certain things that we recite and say and do habitually. We want it to be so boring that it gets lodged in your mind so that if you try to go away from God, all you can remember is the Apostles' Creed and how to pray the Lord's Prayer. So you'll always have a way back. Then, 20 to 23, those chapters are the presentation of the covenant. You get the Ten Commandments. That's the short form of the covenant. And then you get these case laws showing you how to live out the details of normal life. Ten Commandments are a generalization. The case laws are specific cases. Still meant to be general summaries. They're not... They, they still summarize parts, of, but the Ten Commandments are a short summary. And then you get 24, which is the sealing of the covenant. You remember what happens at the end is they finally, they blow the trumpets, they hear all this music, and the voice of God, the mountain is shaking, and then they, God, Moses asks them again, he says, you sure you want to be in covenant with God? They say, oh, absolutely, look what he's done for us. All right, hallelujah. He kills an animal, he, he sprinkles half the blood of this animal, on the altar of the Lord. And half of it he takes. And as they recount with their words the covenant, he splashes their faces with blood. And what this signifies is if you don't do it, you die. If God doesn't do it, he dies. It's a blood covenant. It's the strongest kind of covenant you can imagine. One that results in death if disobeyed. You know, the Bible says this in Genesis. Man should not be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. We were made for God, yes, but also each other. And we cannot love God without loving each other. Even the Ten Commandments are split into four that deal with God and six that deal with others, your neighbor. There's more commandments in the summary of the law that deal with how we deal with each other than even God. It's that important. That's why when the lawyer asked Jesus... What's the greatest commandment? He said, well, there's actually two. Because one can never separate one's love for God from other people. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, you can't love neighbor by yourself. 
You can't love neighbor on social media. You can't love neighbor through email. You can't love neighbor just at the hour and a half we have here on Sunday morning. We too need to bind ourselves to each other. This is what the church is about. Being brothers and sisters in the faith. Being bound to one another in the good times and bad. For rich or for poor. In sickness and in health. What does the world see about Christians when we bounce from here to there? Because of personal preference. I'm not saying you have to stay here. We'd love you to. I'm not trying to make a case for that at all. I'm simply saying, what does the world see when we leave a service and we say, yeah, it was pretty good. The music was all right today. The sermon, yeah, you know. Is that what we're here for? I think you've mistook something. Now, I hope the sermon is good and the music is great. And we aim for that. But it's your job to worship. No one can make you worship. We can bring God to the doorstep, but you have to open the door. This is not just a show every Sunday that we come to and are entertained. Everything in our life seems to be about entertainment. No, this is not entertainment. This is worship. We are to give our life to God in this place. And then move right out the door to go love other people. It's as simple as that. And yet as difficult as that. I wonder today, (laughs) you know, the, the last commandment, by the way, is don't covet. And in the New Testament will tell us coveting is idolatry. It's idol worship. I don't have time to go into it. Why? But let me just say this. Wrote this down last night. Coveting is saying my needs, my desires, my rights. Do you think a healthy relationship is built on those statements? <laughs> Can you imagine an ar- heated argument with your My rights, my desires... I mean, you just went the other way, bud. You're going to do a U-turn at some point. No. America has almost made coveting into a virtue. If we studied the Bible like we did Black Friday deals, we'd truly have a deal on our hands, wouldn't we? I'm just saying, I was sitting there scrolling myself, and I'm thinking, I get all these emails, 70%. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to lose money if I don't look at this and investigate it. (laughs) If we interpreted Scripture like we interpret Amazon reviews, we'd certainly stumble into the hidden truths of God's Word. We get up early to hunt and shop. Why not to worship God? I'm just saying, what if this week, if you've never done it before, you just got up a little, just give God five minutes at the first of your day to just maybe even lift your hands. Just sit, I mean, find a place in your house. I mean, if you wake up early, like I'm the first one up typically in my house, unless somebody's got a problem. 
What if you just found a place in your home and you just lifted your hand and said, I want to worship you, God. I don't even know how to do it, but I want to I worship you. What if you did that? Just, I'm just asking you to do that this week. You got out the Bible and just said, I want, they say this is the word of God. I want to hear the word of God. Let me read with you. I've read without you before, but I want to read with you. Teach me to pray. What if our posture was that just for a week? I wonder how we'd come back this next Sunday. I think, I think this service would blow the top off the roof. I don't think we even sometimes... I, I don't. It, we don't even expect God to do anything sometimes when we come to church. You're sort of going through the motions. I read this quote. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs, burial places, sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? Do we know who we're invoking when we say God's name? They found out. She says, the churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT... To kill on Sunday morning. It is madness to wear straw hats and velvet to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. We sang it a minute ago. Come, Lord Jesus. Mm. Come, Lord Jesus. If that strikes fear in your heart, there's still time. There's still time. He's ready. He's waiting. This is why he's given time. But one day he'll rise from his seated position by the Father's right hand and there will be no more time. Time as we know it will be over. But not today. Not this hour. You can come to him. You can cry out to Jesus. You can give him your heart. You can bind yourself to him in covenant just like they did. And you too can let the blood of Jesus pour over you just as it was sprinkled over them. Man, what an invitation that is. So today, would you hear his call? Today, would you allow him to both forgive you of your sin, but also wash you and make you pure? He can do that. Be of sin the double cure. Lord Jesus, wash us with your Holy Spirit. Baptize us with your Spirit, Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.